This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First, I want to say, this is a huge week that holds the fate of our country in suspense, and I wish for you as much peace as possible as we as a nation voice our choice for the direction of America. May you be safe and healthy. Coming up, an interview with Ken Bonner, author of The Lion Seeker. When you start to write, there's a, there's, there is a tendency to discount where you come from sometimes. We'll be back with Ken Bonner in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back. Whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversation about what it means to be alive today and dig deeper into the art and craft of writing. This effort takes money, time, equipment, more organization than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. No please, no ads. In addition, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, a monthly newsletter, and more. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice, as well as on the culture we inhabit. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. And you can donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Thank you so much. My guest today is Ken Bonnert, who was born in South Africa and is the grandson of Lithuanian immigrants. His debut novel, The Lion Seeker, won both the 2013 National Jewish Book Award for Outstanding Debut Fiction and the 2013 Edward Lewis Wallant Award. His fiction has appeared in McSweeney's, Grain, and The Fiddlehead. His journalism has appeared in The Globe and Mail and other publications. He lives in Toronto. 
His novel, The Lion Seeker, tells the coming-of-age story of the irrepressible Isaac Helger, son of Jewish immigrants surviving the streets of Johannesburg in the shadow of World War II. This interview was recorded in 2014, when First Draft was a radio show and not yet a podcast. We began the interview with Ken Bonner talking about his childhood growing up in South Africa. I had an an unusual upbringing in one sense, and that was that my grandmother uh, lived with us. It turned out to be quite a treasure for me because I didn't realize it at the time, but she was, you know, the genuine uh, uh, article when it came to the shtetl. She she spoke Yiddish, and she was full of the stories of this uh, village that she'd come from, a place called Desat, which when I was growing up I thought was in Russia somewhere, and I had sort of a fairy tale a hazy fairy tale idea about the place because of the stories she told. They all seem to be slightly nostalgic and supernatural sometimes. So when I when I started to write, I I think that she she was a, a character that had always occupied my imagination, and so I went back to thinking about that village and uh, and and really thinking about how how it was that that Ashkenazi Jewish people ended up in Africa how I got there and what what we were doing there and and what it must have been like for her because I hadn't really asked those kind of detailed questions when I was uh, growing up. And I think that's the preoccupation which which drove the interest in writing this novel. And you were saying, though, that these sort of questions about how the Ashkenazi Jews got to South Africa was something that occupied your mind later, but you never directly talked to your grandmother about that. Yeah, that's right. I just sort of assumed that um, that she was a natural part of life, as as a child does. Um, it was only later on that, uh, when I started to write fiction in a serious way, and as any writer does, you know, sort of to ransack your own life for material to 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 see what what's there that could be the basis of a of a work of art. You you, I naturally was sort of drawn back to her as a central figure and, and, and then started to think about what it must have been like for her to arrive in Africa and how strange that was, how exotic. Because the the odd thing is what seemed exotic when I was a child was the village, this place of forests and uh, and strange uh, characters. Like she had a brother who, uh, his name was Benzel, who wrote a stallion and then used to do a bit of smuggling on the side, and then once been fired at by some uh, uh, police, I guess, and, and they shot his hat off. These kinds of stories, or or uh, about a guy who uh, a favored uh, cow that she had, and she used to, you know, give the milk to uh, her neighbor who was sick and it kind of healed her, and things like that. And that seemed exotic to me, but. But afterwards, when I started to think about it from her point of view, it would have been Africa that would have been so strange. What brought you to the point from being a journalist to saying, I'm going to write this story? And it's not a short story. It's complex and it's long and you have dialects in it. So tell me a little bit about that. I think I wanted to write a, a big book, a book that w- that would create a, a living character that could somehow jump out of the page and have a story that would be very bold and uh, with, a, with, a, with a fast pace so that it would sort of grab the reader by the throat. And why I chose to write fiction, I'm not sure that I ever um, did not want to write fiction. It was just that 
After high school, I thought that journalism would be a good choice for, you know, it's a form of professional writing, and um, it just interested me more than uh, studying literature because with journalism, you sort of get out into the world, you interview people. I was always writing fiction in my spare time. And the first stories I wrote were sort of, I wouldn't say um, copies of Kafka, but but they were sort of fantastical in the style of Kafka or, you know, the surrealist. Those were just early experiments. And then I started to write uh, more realistic stories and to think about my own background, my childhood. I think childhood is very uh, vivid to a writer. Those first, let's say, 18 years are are far more important than any of the years that come after, in in my opinion. Um, That's when the memories are most vivid. Those are the first encounters with the world. And so I started to think about South Africa and the characters that I knew, and and I had had not seen them reflected in literature, particularly the kind of slangy way that we spoke. And I started to write about these characters in short stories. And at first I thought that they wouldn't necessarily translate to an audience that's not familiar with South Africa, but fortunately that didn't seem to be the case. And you know, the stories were bought and published, and um, one was uh, shortlisted for, for an award we have here in Canada. And so I was encouraged to keep on writing in that direction, that there might be an audience for that. And, of course, the more you concentrate on something, the more the better you get at it and the more memories become available to turn into fiction. And I just uh, kept developing it in that way. One of the things you have in this is you do have a lot of characters that are of different backgrounds and ethnicities and races, and they each, you know, have a specific way of talking, dialect, the language they use, the way they talk, their cadence. Is that something that you worked really hard on, and was that hard for you, especially um, because you were in Canada and you weren't around it? in your everyday life? There were some trips back to South Africa, and a lot of the people in my life are South African. I mean, the Jewish community in South Africa has become a bit of a diaspora. I have virtually no family in South Africa left. Um, I have family in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, in Israel, in the States. Um, So those voices and those characters are are not... uh, I mean, it's not as if I came to Canada and then had no more contact with that um, community Uh, you know that's really what I've done is really in many ways the story of the community which is uh, you know kind of unfortunate but that's what's happened Um, the the Jewish population in South Africa has really dwindled and I think with the with the language as I mentioned before that you know every writer tries to I I think uh, tries to find their own style their own sound on the page there, uh, and and I just thought that the way that South Africans spoke or or continue to speak is is just an interesting thing to try to capture. And um, I, I had some literary models. Um, I was thinking of, for example, Hemingway in For Whom the Bell Tolls has an interesting way of translating Spanish into English. So that you're reading English, but there's a there's an elaborate formality to the language that um, lets you know that the character is speaking Spanish, and it gives it a kind of an interesting tone. And I thought, well, maybe I could do something like that with a Yiddish into English, because um, Yiddish has a has a lovely feel to it when you hear it. So 
I try to to do that and to also capture the, the slang of South Africa and the way um, people drop in Afrikaans and even Zulu words sometimes into their uh, conversations. And there's a certain cadence to the language that was important for me to try to refine and capture. Yeah, I'm pleased that I, that, that I was able to do that because I don't think it, at least I haven't seen it done the way that, that I um, thought that it could be done. Do you think as a kid you even noticed how unique people spoke around you, the way they had of speaking? Because that was just your life. It's not like you came from England where everyone basically talks the same to this multicultural, diverse place where the differences between people is in their language and how they act in the world. I mean, was there a moment in your life where you became conscious that maybe that was different than other places? Well, I think in South Africa, growing up in those years, you know, the 80s, um, it was a very isolated place. And furthermore, the, the, every community was deliberately isolated, you know, by the government, obviously, infamously. Um, and the Jewish community that I grew up in was very uh, insular, self-contained. And I mean, all of my friends were Jewish. The school that I went to was Jewish. The On uh, Saturdays, I would walk to the neighborhood uh, synagogue and, you know, would be the same friends were there. So it was a very uh, closed-in community. But on the other hand, we did, you know, watch American films and have American uh, shows and television. So, you know, I was aware of other, you know, uh, that our accent was was different. The, the interesting thing is when you when you start, at least this is a this is true for for me. When you start to write, there's a, there's there is a tendency to discount where you come from. Sometimes, you know, it, it, it's the way that the, the way that sort of places like New York or Los Angeles seem like where, like where art should should be made. You know, that's where an, an American accent seem like uh, like the. Uh, like the epitome of uh, of high style, or, and your own accent seems almost, uh, you know, like yokely. If you know what I mean, it seems kind of that uh, it seems kind of laughable that you could make art out of your own background. But in fact, the opposite is true. I think the more an artist digs into their own roots and the specificity of where they come from, the regional accent, the characters that they really know, the stronger the work is in a universal sense, which is kind of ironical because you think that. If you make art very, very specific, it will be only for a limited audience. But I don't think that's true. I think if you do it well, it has universal interest. You know, one of the things that this diversity leads into and is a theme of your book is bigotry and racism and anti-Semitism. It's interesting because your main character, Isaac, has some bigoted thoughts towards blacks in South Africa, yet he experiences anti-Semitism, and it doesn't seem like he quite links it in his brain. And I'm wondering about if you had experiences like that, or what your experience was writing about that. I thought it was important to be true to the character at that time. South Africa was obviously a a very racist place, even when I was growing up in the 80s. But going back to the 20s and the 30s, it's a whole other magnitude. I mean, it's just... White people in South Africa, generally, and, and especially a character like Isaac, 
would barely regard black people as human. I mean, I, I think I, I toned, toned down the, the automatic racist attitudes of the time uh, to some extent. It would have rang completely false to have a character, although at that time there were small, you know, radical groups, and that is touched on in the novel with sort of communist affiliations who were already uh, beginning the um, liberation struggle. But, but this is a novel about ordinary, you know, working class people. It's not, it's not a novel about those uh, exceptional uh, politically inclined characters. This, that, this, is, this is a novel about a working guy. And um, so his attitudes had to be in line with that. At the same time, I did want to introduce the possibility of, of his growth and that comes about through through the uh, through sort of the love affair that he has in the novel with somebody from from a slightly different well not slightly from from a vastly different uh, social background and it's, it it interests me that it's a very morally complex situation in the sense that you have these Jewish people arriving in Africa and obviously they are assuming a a more superior position on in the pecking order the social pecking order they are able to uh, be political masters of, of the indigenous population, but at the same time, they carry with them an idea of themselves as as being at the bottom of that of the of the pack in, in Europe, where they were marginalized and, 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 and had tough lives. And so they uh, they're sort of they have an interesting balancing act uh, and it's great material for a novel to, to explore. One of the things, um, to go back to the book that you talk about that comes up again and again and again, is that Isaac's mom basically says to him, there's two kinds of people, the stupids and the clevers. Which are you? And I'm wondering if this was something that someone actually said to you as a child or where this came from, because it's sort of repeated again and again. And it's almost like the mantra that he's trying to figure out in his life. Which can he be? No, I don't recall anyone ever saying that. I... Uh... I don't know where that came from. That came from the character. The character of Gitzel is very different. I mean, diametrically opposite to my uh, real-life grandmother. Um, in some ways, I, want, I did that deliberately. I wanted to create a character who would go against type. You know, grandmothers often portrayed as sweet and kind, and I wanted to uh, take that, that, that typical character and, and go the other way with it and see how that played out and uh, ended up with a much more complicated character who's both loving and destructive in the same in the same way and I think that uh, mantra as you say is is um, sort of indicative of that more destructive side of her because you know we find out in the book that she's she's been through quite a quite a time in her life and so she's she's a very tough almost ruthless character and has no time for um, the middle way, the complex way. The, she, she sees things very starkly and very clearly. You're either on this side or you're that side. You're either a loser or a winner. And, and she's, she very clearly wants the family to be on the winning side. Well, one of the um, elements of this story that came in is sort of the concept of, of truth. And there were some secrets throughout the story that Isaac didn't know and the sort of the idea of of letting people live their life thinking maybe one truth but maybe a different truth exists and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about truth and subjectivity. The main 
secret in the family that we don't know about is why Gitila's face has, was scarred when she arrived in uh, in South Africa, and and, and uh, there's there are secrets in the family that Isaac slowly starts to uncover, and um, as he's sort of progressing in in his own life, he's also digging deeper. So I, so I the character of Isaac was a way for me to explore into the history of this family and the secret because I find secrets in families to be very interesting things you know they there's 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 an interesting way that events or characters will repeat within a family so there's some kind of um, trauma in, in one generation and even if it's not transmitted you know uh, overtly to the next generation, it, uh, it's still manifest in some way, the way these same things play out over and over. You get these similar uh, characters. And I just find that fascinating. So there's a, sort, a certain uh, truth that gets spelled out about a family in the way that the members of the family live. And that's really what an, a, a novel does, is step back and show that there are motivations that are not spoken about but exist and the way that people conduct their lives hints at the hints at them and so i think if people can find out more about their own families their own roots and their own you know the biographies of their family members they will understand themselves better um, because they will understand more of the truth of of what their role is in the family system and i find that really fascinating um, to think about and to play with in, in fiction. Well, what have been some of the influences on you? One of the things I ask is if you can read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer. Yeah, so I I picked a passage that is not a fiction or poetry. It's um, it's a, it's from a book that was published in in the eighties. Uh, it's, converse, it's called Conversations with Isaac Basheva Singer, and uh, it's it's a Q and A book. Uh, Richard Bergen is the name of the fellow who who asks the questions, and uh, there was a passage in this book that really relates to what we've been talking about, um, and influenced me a lot more than I think I realized when I first read it. Um, but when I was thinking about a passage that you know, sort of resonates, uh, this this one came to mind. Okay, so the singer says, uh, if you're going to write a novel just about a human being, you will never succeed because there isn't such a thing as, quote, just a human being. You cannot write a love story of two human beings without dealing with their background, what nation they belong to, what language their fathers spoke at home and where they grew up. When you talk about a writer, you always mention his nation, his language, Writers, more than any other artists, belong to their nation, their language, their history, their culture. They are both highly individualistic and highly attached to their origin. And Bergen asks, uh, why must this be such an overriding issue? And the singer answers, because of the differences. The difference between an Irishman and an Italian may mean little if they both are engineers, but if they write novels, this difference is of the highest importance. Sean O'Casey will not write like Pirandello. He's Irish, and being Irish is his literary fate. When you want to write a letter, let's say to someone who lives in Poland, you cannot address it to just, quote, a man 
it will never arrive because there are three or four billion men in the world. You have to address, to address it to Mr. So-and-so, give the name of the country, the city, the street, the number of the house, and sometimes the number of the apartment. The same thing is true in literature. Of course we know that you're writing about a man, but the question is what man? Where does he come from? Where does he live? What language does he speak? You have to give his spiritual address. Of course, an address in literature is different from an address on an envelope, but the idea is the same. Go from the general to the particular until we know there is only one such person. Literature assumes that no man or woman are completely alike. Individuality is the axiom of literature. The ability to convey individuality and to make it interesting is the very essence of talent. So were you reading this as you were writing for, as a reminder and uh, inspiration? Um, no, I don't think so. I just think it was one of those influences that encouraged me to use my own background and roots uh, to turn into fiction. You know, back when I was writing short stories and trying to uh, develop as a writer. And uh, it's just a very... The book is just, he strikes me as a very sort of straightforward, commonsensical kind of guy. And it just made a lot of intuitive sense to me. A lot of the things he says in, the, in these conversations that had an influence. But I think that passage about the uh, a character having a spiritual address, uh, who is the character? Where do they come from? What, what language? What father, you know, what do they speak with their parents? Um, you know, that's the difference between sort of the cardboard characters that you often see in in, uh, in bad uh, genre fiction and the uh, the depth that a character can have in a uh, in a good um, more serious novel the depth you know the the understanding of the background is the key like, the, like filling in all of the, the blanks in a, in a character's biography can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky or something that changed from the first draft or something that you feel you succeeded at. I'm going to read from the beginning part of the book. Uh, there's a little passage here that I kind of like because I like the pace, pacing of it. Um, it's about when Kittela, the, the mother of the main character, leaves Lithuania, takes a, uh, a boat trip and arrives uh, in South Africa, then joins her husband. Cape Town was on a bay raked by salt winds, its streets laced over the roots of a flathead mountain. Colors burnt the air, blood flowers, thorny eruptions of vermilion, lime yellow smears on the rocks like veins of fresh paint. The red sun had sandpaper beams. She saw human beings burnt the color of coal, a dark brewed tea, or cured leather. She smelled their alien sweat and their tangy cooking, heard the mad bibbering of their manifold tongues, a strange music that made her heart sag in the fear of this shattering place. But later, she saw pretty whitewashed houses in a row near the waterfront, with palm trees in tranquil garden squares, and she dared hope that Abel had secured them similar lodgings. Johannesburg was two hot, dry days to the north by train, through country that stunned her like a blow, the cactus hills, the khaki desolation of the plains, the distant, hazy sky pierced by that red sun, a madman's glowering eyeball. Her husband was the same, but he was swaddled by grime, like a gem wrapped in dirty rags. He lived in a squalid cottage in the self-made Jewish ghetto along Bait Street, 
in the inner city neighborhood of Dornfontein. Here it was as if a poor Lithuanian village had torn itself up from the cool forest lands of the north to root again in the baking dust of the deepest south. There were three small rooms behind his workshop, with a surly black woman living in a tin hut out back. Kittler gave herself over to tenderness with her beloved for only a day, no more, his long fingers and his gentle eyes. Then she asked, What do you need her for? Everybody has one, said Egil. It's the way here. People even poorer than us have them. What does she do? She cleans. She cooks. Is that what she calls it, said Kittler. And she fired her that afternoon and set to work cleaning out the pigsty of what Abel Helga's life had become without her. All right, and tell me a little bit about why you chose this passage. Well, it seems to um, capture, you know, the essence of what the book is about, which is immigrating to Africa. I like the way that it covers a lot of ground in a very short space. You know, in just a few lines, you, you get a lot of compressed poetic images of what what the, the physicality of Africa was like to her. And it also shows us the relationship between her and, and uh, Abel. It's very quickly sketched out. So I just like the, the economy of it. And where do you write? I have a little room on the second floor, and it's uh, a room where uh, nothing is in. <laughs> it's completely bare. There are no books. There are no paintings on the wall. There, are, there is uh, no internet, no television, of course, no uh, phone. So uh, I know that if I sit enough hours in that room, uh, work will get done. <laughs> and what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? either have a run or take a very long walk through the city just to uh, to see the real world for a while. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I think first is my partner, uh, Nicole, who uh, who is not someone of um, from an arts background at all. And uh, it's just, to me, represents a kind of uh, ordinary reader. And it's really invaluable to, to, to hear from her because I get a sense of um, how the story uh, strikes her, you know, the, the pacing of the story, whether they're, some parts are too slow or some parts are um, getting bogged down. And so, yeah, I like to, to run, it off, run it by her first. How have you dealt with rejection? I don't enjoy it, but it's, it's just, I just accept it because it's part of the game. It's like being a, wanting to be a, a champion boxer and think you know you're going to you're going to get you're going to get punched if you want to be a boxer and if you want to be a writer you're going to get rejection so it's just part of the game and you have to simply accept it and um, keep on trying to uh, better your craft in the face of it. And what is your favorite word? I couldn't play favorites; they're all lovely. Um, words are just interesting tools, and it depends on the job that um, that it, that is required. So I don't think I could play favorites for one particular one. It depends on what, it, what, what I need it for. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest today was Ken Bonnert, author of the novel The Lion Seeker. This interview was recorded in 2014 before First Draft was a podcast. If you like today's episode, check out my interview with Jim Shepard, where we talk about his novel, The Book of Aaron, which tells the story of an orphan Polish boy driven from the country into Warsaw during World War II. In the city, 
He bands together with other orphans and forms a gang to trade goods and smuggle food in order to survive. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Susan Minot and Jonathan Lethem. I want to send a huge thank you out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.